It's Tuesday. You, you know what that means. Sing along if you know the words. I always do. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense, the show, episode 231. We're going to go ahead and kick this thing off the right way with Queen. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing, we will, we will rock you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show. As always, I will be your host through the world of nonsense, history, mystery, and intrigue. We're going to have sound effects, musical clips, a gold solo cup, and a whole lot of motherfucking non. That's right, you can say it. Go ahead. Nonsense. That's right, motherfuckers. Wow. Okay. Okay. We don't need. Wow. All I can say is wow. We don't need to be uh, uh, sarcastic right off the bat, do we? You're mocking me, aren't you? No, I thought you were mocking me. I tell you, I don't get no respect. No you, respect at all. Well, yeah, you don't get no respect. You get plenty of respect. But it's me don't get no, You interrupt me every week. I just started the show. You interrupted me this week. We've got entirely too many troublemakers here. No, no, we don't. I don't think you're understanding me. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? <sighs> of course I speak English. I do a podcast in English. I mean, I also do one in Italian, but nobody fucking knows about that one, so don't fucking talk about it, okay? Well, no shit. Okay, thanks. You son of a bitch. <laughs> As you can tell, my co-hosts are in the house. That's right, the ghosts that live in my computer that formerly inhabited my house. They took over the computer, and now they fuck with my show. They're sons of bitches, but we just, uh, you know, we tolerate them because sometimes they're funny. What's on tap for Nonsense 231 here with Captain Nick, CPTN Radio, and uh, the Nonsense Sound Studio? Well, um, I don't have a title yet. I have, a, I have a, like a, a tentative title, but usually I'm not confident about titling until I'm done with the show because you never know what I'm going to say. Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. Uh, this is number 19, in fact. I, uh, I spent a little time finally going through and compiling a list of the show. I have a journal now where every page is an entry for an episode where I list out what segments I did, um, what the Captain's Film Institute was, the date and all that. Someday, maybe I'll go through and do like, and you know, just put in what songs I have. Um, I have a master list of episode titles. I have a master list of the Captain's Film Institute. So like, it's official now, you guys. I got this whole thing kind of dialed in like it's almost a professional operation. Captain's Film Institute entry of the week um, as voted on by my Instagram followers. If you're not an Instagram follower, my question is, how did you find this show? 
If you are an Instagram follower, thanks for finding this show. Um, I appreciate y'all voting in the poll every week. It's kind of a fun way to do it. Um, it's very interesting to me. I was having some discussions with some people on the messages on the Instagram about how interesting the voting patterns are with the different things I put up on my page. I put up a lot of random stuff, but there's a couple of things that I kind of watch. So a little while ago, I put up a thing about like I needed in, uh, music with really good intro drops, stuff that I could start the show with that would like pep up the energy, right? And the entries I got were almost, I would say like 80% songs I did not expect and that I would not have ever picked to fit that prompt. And then I put up each and every song for a vote and the voting was all over the place. It was a fascinating look. And, and, and really the conclusion I drew was that my, 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 uh, my friends list is very diverse. There's a lot of experiences. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of preferences on there. And, uh, it's hard to track what's going on, hard to find a consensus, which I think makes things interesting. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about a Knight's Tale. We're going to talk about a legendary figure by the name of David Duck. David Duck, um, well, I'm not going to tell you much about his story now. You're going to have to wait, but he is known as the man with two lives. Cat has nine. He has two. Tell you all about it. Uh, in the myth and mystery segment of this week's episode, uh, we're going to talk about um, a, a legendary mystery called the Cardiff Giant. Is it proof of real-life giants? Or is it yet another scam perpetrated by a mischievous and devious con man? Well, you have to keep listening and find out. We're going to talk about what I've been watching this week. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some biographies I've been watching on the A&E Network uh, about some of my personal childhood heroes. We're going to talk a little bit about the broken window theory, one of my favorite YouTube channels to follow lately. It's just kind of like calming, interesting background noise a little bit. I'll tell you all about that. We're going to talk about the Storer Army. I think I've mentioned it before. We're going to talk about him again because there was a, a moment on this week's segment. They post every Monday. And there was a moment this week that I really liked. I thought it was poignant, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a documentary I watched last week called The Last Blockbuster. I didn't get a chance to talk about it on episode 230, so it, it migrated to 231. That's the way this works. We'll see how it goes. Um, you know, maybe we'll run out of time. Maybe we won't. I feel like I've overbooked this show with, like, a lot of really good segments, and if things get pushed off, they get pushed off, and that's okay, right? Dang. Yeah, no. No, it's totally fine. Like, everything's okay. Let's see if the studio audience agrees. Studio audience, is it okay with you if sometimes I run out of room and I have to push, it, push a segment off to the next week? You guys cool with that? Just by a round of applause. Okay, thank you. See? They agree. Hope you guys do <laughs> do too at home. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about, uh, I've got a really, really, really great segment on Micronations for you this week. Um, Lee, Emily, stay tuned to the end. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Um, it's, I put a lot of work into this one. It's, it's kind of epic. Um, we're going to do a lost treasure story about the lost city of Death Valley, California. It's not what you think. Stay tuned. If we have time, we're going to talk about meme dumps. I'm going to give you an, uh, an Instagram follow that you will not regret if you're into history, espionage, or intrigue, or even engineering inventions, uh, listening devices, uh, intelligence gathering, surreptitious activities, all kinds of mysterious shit. Spycraft 101 is for you. I'll tell you all about it later. Um, and also, of course, I mean, it's nonsense, the show, which means, of course, we're going to steal some music. Of course, we're going to have a little bit of fun. Um, of course, we're going to do some stuff. But before we get any deeper into the show, I want to mention two things. First of all, I want to mention our sponsors. That's right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much to the fine fellas down there in Paso Robles, California at Paso Wine Shine. Uh, 
uh, finest kissers in the business that make delicious alcoholic beverages. They're handsome, they're brave, they're funny, they're intelligent, and they're really, really, really good at making alcohol which is the most important piece of the entire sponsorship promo. So reach out to the boys at Paso Wine Shine. Ask them to send you some vodka lemonade, uh, some orange brandy, some Manhattan mix, some vodka. I don't know what else they've got going on right now, but you should tell them I sent you, and you should give them some money. They'll give you some alcohol. Everybody wins. The studio audience really, really like that. Um, and before we get any further, I want to do like a really special, just a couple minutes, um, some of you may think this song goes on a little bit too long, and I want you to know that if that's a feeling you have, um, it's because I love you. Happy seven-year anniversary to my favorite, favorite onions. Uh, I appreciate the hell out of you, too. Um, and just so you know, I'm, I'm going to keep on loving you. This is the Nonsense of the Show Romance Break. Here I come, guys. This is the climax. Chauncey Onion, this is for you. I love you, and I loved you first, and Kelly knows it. Sorry for my singing voice. I'm going to keep on loving you Because it's the only thing I'm going to do I don't want to sleep I just want to keep on loving you. <laughs> oh, um, listen, straight up, no bullshit. This episode is dedicated to Chauncey and Kelly Onion. I love you dearly. Thank you for making my life so much better. Um, all right, on with the fun. Are you guys ready for this? Because I know I sure am. Let's start things off with a little tale about a mysterious, mystical giant. Uh, in this week's edition segment of the mm, in this week's edition of the myth and mystery segment, I present to you the tale of the Cardiff Giant. <clears throat> what started as an argument between George Hull of New York and a Methodist preacher in 1868 turned into one of the most famous hoaxes most famous hoaxes of all time in America, known as the Cardiff Giant. Hull, an atheist, was arguing over scripture from the Bible, in particular Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 that states there were giants in the earth in those days. So Hull decided to pull one over uh, the faith community and and proceeded with a long, elaborate plan. Uh, my out loud reading skills are not warmed up today. Don't worry, I'll get there. 
First, he came to Fort Dodge, Iowa, and purchased an acre of land along Gypsum Creek. Then he hired men in Fort Dodge to carve out a 12-foot-long by 4-foot-wide block of gypsum that was 2 feet thick. Telling the local men it was for a monument to Abraham Lincoln, he then had the block shipped to Chicago, where he hired Edward Burghardt, a German stonecutter, to secretly carve it into the likeness of a man. Hull and Burghardt used stains and acids to weather the giant's skin and darning needles to create pores in his body in order to make it look more realistic. After they were finished, Hull then secretly shipped the carved block to Cardiff, New York, where it was put into a pit and buried on land owned, on land owned by his cousin, William Newell. Hull's total cost in setting his plan in motion was $2,600, uh, which would equate to about $42,000 as of 2016. Almost a year later, Newell hired a couple of men to dig a well on that same spot. And on October 16, 1869, the great discovery was made, setting Hull's hoax into action. Wasting no time, Newell quickly set up a tent over the giant and began charging 25 cents for people to see that indeed, giants had walked the earth. Attracting the attention of scientists and archaeological scholars, it was quickly pronounced a fake and only carved stone. But some argued it was an ancient statue created by a Jesuit priest in the early 17th century. Who knows where the fuck they got that idea. Meanwhile, Newell upped admission charge to 50 cents. As soon as that debate starts, you know the crowds are going to come because they want to see for themselves. This is a real P.T. Barnum level stunt. Hull, seeing that even more money was to be had, sold his part interest in the giant for $23,000, or almost half a million dollars in today's money, to a group headed by David Hannum. Hannum had the giant moved to nearby Syracuse, New York for exhibition, drawing huge crowds, to nobody's surprise. That attracted the attention of, of course, famous showman P.T. Barnum, who offered $50,000 for the giant. You're talking over a million dollars. However, Hannum's group turned him down. Fuck you, Mr. Barnum. This is our giant. We are not selling. Barnum, not wanting to be denied, hired a man to create a replica and then put it on display in New York City, claiming his was the real giant and that the Cardiff giant was indeed a fake. So in very typical Barnum fashion, he said, oh, you won't let me buy it? Well, I'll just create my own and say yours is the fake and mine's the real one. So fuck you. Bigger pulpit, bigger influence, which means I tell the truth. Still true in modern day. We just don't recognize it nearly as easily. Sip of rum. For P.T. Barnum and his sense of honor, honesty, and integrity. <laughs> Hannum, in reference to those paying to see Barnum's version of the giant, was quoted in one newspaper as saying, there's a sucker born every minute. Over the years, that quote has mistakenly been at... Mm, over the years, that quote has been mistakenly attributed attributed to Barnum instead. So not only did Barnum steal his fucking giant, but he stole his fucking catchphrase as well. Damn, Barnum. That's cold-blooded. Hannum sued P.T. Barnum for calling his giant a fake, but George Hull admitted to his hoax on December 10th. And in February 1870, the court ruled that Barnum couldn't be sued for calling a fake giant a fake. Hey, you, you, you can't sue him for calling it a fake because it's a, it, well, it's a fake. 
And truth is absolute defense against libel, slander, or any other kind of verbal or written fucking espionage. Of course, that wouldn't be the end of the story for the Cardiff Giant. In 1901, it made an appearance at the Pan American Exposition, and in 1923 at the Hawkeye Fair and Exhibition. It has been, oh, it has also been referenced in pulp culture many times since 1870. Mm. And the hoax imitated several times over, including the famous bunko man Soapy Smith, when in 1892 he took a real body and passed it off as a petrified man he called McGinty. Smith would profit from the ruse for several years, charging 10 cents and swindling those waiting in line with shell games. He even profited by selling interests in the exhibition. So this is a guy that took just a normal old corpse and said, like, hey, this is a petrified man. His name is McGinty. You should pay me 10 cents to check him out. And while you're waiting in line, why don't you play these gambling games? And, uh, hey, if you got a little cash and you like the profit I'm making, why don't you buy in and I'll give you a cut? Except you're never going to get a fucking cut because I'm a con man. The original Cardiff giant would eventually wind up in an Iowa man's basement as a coffee table until it was eventually sold to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, in 1947, where it continues to be displayed to this very day. The other copy, created by P.T. Barnum, is claimed to be at Farmington Hills, Michigan Museum. Meanwhile, a third replica, created in 1972, is on display at the Fort Museum in Frontier Village at Fort Dodge, Iowa, acknowledging the area where the original stone was cut and the hoax was born. So if you want to go see the original, head on out to Cooperstown, New York, um, it's too bad there's nothing else worth seeing in Cooperstown. Sorry, baseball fans. <laughs> You're obviously confused and aroused. I am neither confused nor aroused. I am doing a show. I'm hard at work. I've got a gold solo cup for, full of rum, and I'm feeling pretty damn fucking good. How are you feeling? And, well, I don't know. what. what why are you here? No, why would I know that? What the fuck are you talking about? I just asked you a question. I just wanted to know. We're trying to have a conversation here. Oh, that's stupid. No, it's not stupid, okay? We're, ha- we're doing a show. There's a lot of people listening. They are trying to be entertained, and right now you're distracting me because I'm way more entertaining without you. Wrong again, idiot. Okay, okay. You know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go ahead and mute you for the rest of the show. Hey. What? Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? No, I'm muting you. Shut up. Oh, come on. Come on. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you guys. Forgive me for the state of the fucking people in my life. These fucking ghost of after the quarantine. We've been stuck together for like 16, 15, 16 months or some shit. And they get a little antsy in the pants. You know how it is. Um, all right. Listen. I know it didn't get a lot of votes um, when we... Uh, no you know what I'm changing my mind I want a musical break because I like musical breaks I got a lot of music I want to listen to I want to take a breath take a breather take a little drink this is Molly Hatchet this is Flirting with Disaster probably played it before but I'm playing it again because I like it so listen to it enjoy it watch that 70s show you won't be sorry
right, that's enough of that. Oh, my God. Okay, hang on. I'm pressing the wrong buttons. I'm letting the song go on too long. It's chaos in the Nonsense Sound Studios for Nonsense 231. Hey, by the way, if you like Nonsense, the show, if you get entertainment out of it, you get an hour's worth of entertainment a week. That's at the fucking minimum. Um, If you enjoy it, if you think it's worthwhile, do me a favor. Head on over to patreon.com backslash nonsense the show and uh, support me. Throw a couple of bucks an episode at me. Four episodes a month, you know, throw five bucks a show. That's $20 a month. You're definitely getting $20 a month worth of entertainment out of this here's show. Cut it in half. Call it $250. Call it $250 an episode. Throw me 10 bucks a month. You're definitely getting that much of fucking entertainment out of this show, right? Right? Right. Whoa, come on. Just because I haven't had a new Patreon subscriber in a long time doesn't mean you got to get fucking sarcastic with me, okay? So why don't you just relax? I'm going to put this out to the people. I need more Patreon subscribers, okay? I'm not going to beg. I'm a proud man. I'm a man of ego, okay? Okay? All I'm saying is jump on to Patreon.com, support nonsense the show. You won't be sorry. I'll keep on cranking out incredible entertainment for you week after week after week after week after week after week that's right and now ladies and gentlemen it's time for us to dip into the legendary figures segment of our show um i don't have a theme song for it i'm considering hiring somebody to do it unless there's a listener that wants to volunteer to come up with some kind of jingle jangle intro for uh for for the legendary figures segment let's see let's see i'm dipping over to uh to the nonsense music segment here No, that's not it. That's not the one. Ah, that's really not the one either, is it? This is not going to cut it. No, it's not. Okay, let's... Uh... Oh, okay. You know what? Legendary figures. This one might work. What do you think? What you want, what you want, what you want to do. Okay, that's enough. We'll come up with a theme song eventually. That's not the one, though. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Legendary Figures segment of this show. That's right. It's time for us to talk about David Duck, a legendary man who lived two legendary lives. Now sit on down and hear a tale about a righteous man who lived two lives of excitement and fun from town to shining town. Here is the interesting story of David William Duck, related by himself. Duck is an old man living in Aurora, Illinois. Shout out Wayne's World, where he is universally respected. He is commonly known, however, as Dead Duck. His story relates as follows. In the autumn of 1861, I was a private soldier of the 18th Infantry. My company was one of those stationed at Fort Phil Phil Kearney in Wyoming, commanded by Colonel Carrington. The country is more or less familiar with the history of that garrison, particularly with the slaughter by the Sioux of a detachment of 81 men and officers, not one escaping, through the disobedience of orders by its commander, the brave but reckless Captain Fetterman. When that occurred, I was trying to make my way with important dispatches to Fort C.F. Smith on the Big Horn. 
As the country swarmed with hostile Indians, I traveled by night and concealed myself as best I could before daybreak. The better to do so, I went afoot, armed with a Henry rifle and carrying three days' rations in my haversack. For my second, uh, for my second place of concealment, I chose what seemed in the darkness a narrow canyon leading through a range of rocky hills. It contained many large boulders detached from the slopes of the hills. Behind one of these, in a clump of sagebrush, I made my bed for the day and soon fell asleep. It seemed as if I had hardly closed my eyes, though. Though, in fact, it was near midday when I was awakened by the report of a rifle, the bullet striking the boulder just above my body. Talk about a rude awakening. A band of Indians had trailed me and had me nearly surrounded. The shot had been fired with with exorable aim by a fellow who had caught sight of me from the hillside above. The smoke of his rifle betrayed him, and I was no sooner on my feet than he was off his and rolling down the declivity. Talk about reflexes, my God. Then I ran in a stooping posture, dodging among the clumps of sagebrush in a storm of bullets from invisible enemies. The rascals did not rise in pursue, which I thought rather odd, for they must have known by my trail that they had to deal with only one man. In law enforcement, we call that a clue. The reason for their inaction was soon made clear. I had not gone a hundred yards before I reached the limit of my run, the head of the gulch, which I had mistaken for a canyon. It terminated in a concave breast of rock, nearly vertical and destitute of vegetation. In that cul-de-sac, I was caught like a bear in a pen. Pursuit was needless. They had only to wait. And wait they did. For two days and two nights... Crouching behind a rock topped with a growth of mesquite and with the cliff at my back uh, suffering agonies of thirst and absolute hopeless of deliverance. I fought the fellows at long range, firing occasionally at the smoke of their rifles as they did at that of mine. Of course, I did not dare to close my eyes at night and lack of sleep was a keen torture. I remember the morning of the third day which I knew was to be my last. I remember rather indistinctly that in my desperation and delirium I sprang out into the open and began firing my repeating rival without seeing anybody to fire at. And then, I remember no more of that fight. The next thing that I recollect was my pulling myself out of a river just at nightfall. I had not a rag of clothing and knew nothing of my whereabouts, but all that night, I traveled, cold and footsore, toward the north. At daybreak, I found myself at Fort C.F. Smith, my destination, but without my dispatches. The first man that I met was a sergeant named William Briscoe, whom I knew very well. You can fancy his astonishment at seeing me in that condition, and my own, at his asking who the devil I was. Dave Duck. I answered, who should I be? He stared like an owl. You do look it, he said, and I observed that he drew a little away from me. What's up? he added. I told him what had happened to me the day before. He heard me through while uh, still staring. And then he said, 
My dear fellow, if you are Dave Duck, I ought to inform you that I buried you two months ago. I was out with a small scouting party and found your body full of bullet holes and nearly scalped, somewhat mutilated otherwise. I'm sorry to say right where you say you made your fight. Come to my tent and I'll show you your clothing and some letters that I took from your person. The Commandant has your dispatches. He performed that promise. He showed me the clothing, which I resolutely put on. He showed me the letters, which I put into my pocket. He made no objection. And and then he took me to the Commandant, who heard my story and coldly ordered Briscoe to take me to the guardhouse. On the way, I said, Bill Briscoe, did you really and truly bury the dead body that you found in those logs? Well, sure, he answered, just as I told you. It was Dave Duck, all right. Most of us knew him. And now you, you damned imposter, you'd better tell me who the hell you are. Well, I'd sure give something to know, I said. A week later, I escaped from the guardhouse and got out of the country as fast as I could. Twice I have been back, seeking for that fateful spot in the hills, but unable to find it. The author of that story is a man by the name of Ambrose Bierce. Uh, He was the author of several other supernatural stories as well as tales of the Civil War, uh, which he drew from his own experience as a Union cartographer and officer. Bierce worked as a journalist and editor for the San Francisco Newsletter and California Advertiser. In 1913, at the age of 71, Bierce disappeared into revolution-torn Mexico to fight alongside the bandit Pancho Villa. Although a popular theory is that Bierce argued with Villa over military strategy and was subsequently shot, he probably perished in the Battle of Oji, mm, Ojinaga on January 11th, 1914. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the incredible, mysterious tale of dead David Duck, the man with two lives. Pretty good, right? I like that one, too. <laughs> oh, all right. Listen, I'm kind of in a vibe tonight. I'm feeling pretty good. I got just the, 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 the right level of buzz. The light's right. I got a fan blowing on my feet, legs, and crutch. I got the GoPro recording a time-lapse footage. The light shining on me just so. And, and I know I've mentioned it before, but I got a gold solo cup. Full of Captain's Rummerade 3000, a really classy, sophisticated adult drink comprised of red Gatorade. That's right. It's not fruit punch. Fuck your fruit punch. It is red. The only people that call Gatorade by their flavor names are cops, and I am no longer one of those, and that is why I call it red Gatorade. And, of course, I mix that, ga- that red Gatorade with a little bit of the crack and rum. Supplied by my dear, my wonderful, my loyal friend, Mr. Allen, the beardless wonder. Incredible. Why don't you guys chill out for a minute? Why don't you guys go ahead and listen to Alana Miles as she sings to you about Black Velvet. 
one of those songs that gives me a feeling I can't quite describe. It takes me to a nostalgic time that doesn't really exist. It makes me feel feelings that don't have words to associate with them. Does that make sense? No, of course it doesn't. Go away, Alana Miles. We got fucking work to do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, every week I like to tell you guys a little bit about what I've been watching. I spend an inordinate amount of time consuming media because I don't sleep enough and uh, I don't like silence. Because the demons, they haunt me. What the fuck? Come on. (laughs) All right, that's enough of that, you sons of bitches. The ghosts are fucking with me tonight. So here's the deal. I watch a lot of TV. I like to tell you guys what I've been watching so that when you hard-working a child having responsibility doing people have the valuable time to sit down and watch a little something, whether it be on the YouTubes, on the television, on the movie screen, whatever it may be. Um, I want to give you some recommendations, something you consider you, you can consider and save you a little bit of scrolling time, a little bit of sorting through all the options going. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Seen that. I don't know. Dog shit. Seen that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody auto tune that T pain. I'm coming for you. Um, what have I been watching this week? This week I'm going to recommend to you, um, it's no secret that I have been a fan of professional wrestling since I'm about, uh, let's call it uh, eight years old, 1994 or so. Um, I don't remember how I found it, but I know I found it. I know I fell in love almost immediately because of the, the pageantry, the theatricality, the overemphasized silliness. There's nonsense afoot in professional wrestling and I'm all about nonsense, hence the name of the fucking show motherfuckers um lately a and e has has put out a a series of documentaries on professional wrestlers called the a and e wrestler bios look a wwe a and e bio i don't know um the two that stand out for me are the macho man randy savage and stone cold steve austin two of my favorites they're big characters good promo ability that's the talking that's the fucking gift of gab that's the lashing of the tongue if you know what i'm saying um, I know they also have Ric Flair, Roddy Piper. They got Bret Hart they just released. I think they have Booker T. There's a couple more. I haven't watched them all. All I know is I really enjoy it. And I actually wrote something down just into my notes. I have a working file that I keep on the notes section of my phone uh, just to help me plan the show as the week goes by. I collect everything there. And then on Monday, I collate it all, sort it into my format, get it all ready to go. Tuesday is the finalization day. Watch my CFI video, um, you know, get myself all dialed in, pick some songs, have a couple of beverages, get a little stoned. And then I sit down and I do the show. What I wrote about these uh, A&E biographies is this. Some people grow up with football players or soldiers. Some with scientists or astronauts or presidents. My heroes were comedians and professional wrestlers. These A&E biographies tell the stories of some of those heroes. 
Um, I, I, professional wrestling is one of those art forms that I consider as very misunderstood. It's really cheesy. It's really hokey. It's not always great. In fact, it's really often not. But when it is good, it is better than fucking anything else on the planet. Stone Cold Steve Austin is a pinnacle of that. The Macho Man Randy Savage is a pinnacle of that. These documentaries are great because it also shows you some of the real stories behind the scenes. It shows you what the real people were like behind the larger-than-life characters. You don't have to be a pro wrestling fan to enjoy A&E wrestling biographies. Check them out wherever you find your television. I'd also like to recommend a YouTube channel called The Broken Window Theory. This is a couple of German dudes who travel around Europe doing urban exploration. For those of you that are not aware of what urban exploration is, what it is is this. It is people sneaking into abandoned, derelict, uh, secured structures that are no longer in use and exploring them, photographing them, documenting them. And of course, there's a whole culture. There's a whole set of rules and behaviors and accepted beliefs that go with this culture because they want to respect these spaces. They want to make sure they last for other explorers um, to visit, so rules about stealing and vandalism and so on are, are pretty fucking common. Um, the broken window theory, these German dudes, they visit abandoned castles from World War One, Manor houses going all the way back into the 1800s. Nuclear missile bunkers and silos. Cold War communication bunkers. Some of the places they have to get into are pretty fucking harrowing crawling dozens of feet through very tight, very claustrophobic, very dangerous, very unknown tunnels and shafts and air ducts. Um, there's been a couple of times watching these videos that I have like physically recoiled and started feeling claustrophobia, even though I don't think I'm claustrophobic. <coughs> Highly recommend you check out the broken window theory. Good background stuff for if you're working on something else, you don't have to watch the whole thing, but you can kind of like tune in when shit gets exciting. Um, and then very importantly, this week, just one that really stood out. I think I've talked about them before, um, but there's a, a YouTube channel called Storer, S-T-O-R-R-E-R. It's a group of English guys um, that do parkour, free running, stunts, jumps, flips, running along ledges, climbing over buildings, jumping up off of walls, doing all sorts of like really acrobatic, really technical, highly physical shit. That as you're looking at it doesn't look like much, but as you get deeper into their videos, you can start spotting some of the technicality and the like the the high level skill going on. Toby Seeger, S E G A R, um, is one of the premier guys on this team and seems to be one of the premier guys in the community. Um, just mind blowing watching what these guys do. Some of my favorite videos are when they do water challenges. Um, they upload every Monday. Now that the, the summer months are coming back, I expect we're going to see a lot more water challenges, which is where they go to the canals, which I've talked about, I think, a little bit on this show. Um, they go to beachside areas, whatever. And they do stunts in, you know, that over water so that they can kind of commit a little harder because when they go into water, all they're going to do is get cold and wet and nasty, not dead, um, which in some of their rooftop stunts is not you know nearly the same thing. <laughs> so this week, um, there was a moment <clears throat> um, let's see. Uh, they were doing a water challenge this week that involved a jump. They were on a lock for the canal system, um, and they had to jump from the concrete pier out to a concrete piling out in the water, 10-plus feet away. I don't know the exact measurement, but it was pretty fucking far. It was pretty fucking scary, pretty, fog, you know, pretty high up off of the water. And it's just kind of an intense jump because you're jumping at the corner of it, um, which is much scarier than jumping at a flat for obvious reasons. 
Um, and, and one of their guys is a guy called Josh. They're all very skilled. They all have different specialties. They all have different personalities. They're really fun to watch together. And, and as you watch, one of the things you learn, and, and if you've been listening to Nonsense, the show for a while, you know that I am a big, big fan of subcultures, societies, communities, tribes. Parkour is no different. Storer is no different. They have traditions. They have catchphrases. They have a certain language. They have certain, you know, kind of historical knowledge that is exclusive to their little group. As a viewer of their channel, you become a part of that, even on a peripheral level. Um, One of the things you start to learn is that with parkour, because of the danger involved, because of the bravery involved, because of, you know, just the the general risk involved, nobody is ever going to force you to make a jump or take a move that you're not prepared to do or you're not comfortable with. It's all about you taking the time, doing whatever preparation, doing whatever mental steps you need to do to get ready to take that jump. But you're also going to recognize that those people are going to encourage you the whole way because they know how important it is to push through that fear. In this episode this week, Josh had a moment that I didn't appreciate at first. And as the video went on, and they addressed it, and the other guys started talking about it, I started to realize just how important of a moment it was for Josh in his parkour career, in his growth as an athlete, in his growth as a technician of this highly specialized, very dangerous, very intense skill set. Um, what I have written here is that their teamwork, their philosophy, their brotherhood, and their encouragement are incredible. Case in point, Josh on the water challenge. It's a big scary jump from pier to pillar 10 plus feet away over water. As he's preparing to make the jump, some other guys have already done it. Some other guys have already gone in the water. But something about Josh's approach, he gets into his own head. All of a sudden, he's in a fight against himself to make this jump. It's not going to kill him. He knows that. But something is blocking him. He gets to the ledge, he counts himself down, and he freezes. He gets to the ledge, he counts himself down, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then he backs off. And then some guy comes shouting, don't you do it, don't you do it! Some passerby who thinks they're up to some mischief, and then they say, please just wait, please just wait, this is very important. He needs to get through this, we're just jumping, nobody's going to get hurt, we've done it a few times, and the guy says, okay, do what you got to do. And meanwhile, all the guys are all around filming. There's an audience of normal people, just, you know, just citizens, just civilians, just passers-by who stop to watch because they can see something is going on. And meanwhile, here's poor Josh having a panic moment, having a crisis moment, having a, 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 a moment of truth moment where he has to face himself, he has to face his fears, he has to face his own mental blocks. And for over 30 minutes, he fights this battle And his friends, six, seven guys, another couple dozen people watching, nobody gets upset, nobody gets impatient, they just wait, and they encourage him, you've got this Josh, you can do it Josh, look at the jump, you can make it, this is the one, we believe in you Josh. The support, the intensity, the love, the brotherhood, the community was all there. It was all on display in a way that just as I was watching really stood out. It was really, really poignant. His team cheering him on, building him up, supporting him all the way. And then 
Finally, the moment comes. After 30 minutes of waiting and dickering back and forth and hesitating and hemming and hawing and backing off and stepping up and backing off and stepping up and backing off, and finally Josh says, all right, I'm doing it. I'm finally going to do it. And he steps up and he counts it down. Three, two, one, and he makes the jump. And he jumps out, and it's a bold jump, and he hits the side of the post, and you can immediately tell he's not landing it. He's not going to make the stick. He bails off. He bounces backward. He falls into the water. He swims back to the shore. He climbs out. Everybody around him is cheering their heads off as if he had landed the most difficult trick you had ever seen in your life. As if he's won a world championship in front of millions and millions of people worth millions and millions of dollars. And he earned himself a supermodel, super scientist, super intelligent, super charismatic, kind, charitable, charming wife. And all he can say is... I had more to give. I didn't give enough. I could have done it. And everybody everybody around him is cheering. They're slapping him on the back. They're high-fiving him. They're hugging him. They're telling him, you did it. You did it. And all he can think about is, I could have made the jump. I could have stuck the landing. But that's not what he's being celebrated for. What he's being celebrated for is the fact that every single parkour athlete surrounding him, his friends, his amigos, his compadres, his comrades, his brothers, these people that practice the same art form he does, that understand the challenges, they understand the risks, they understand the injuries, the letdowns, but most importantly, they understand the triumphs. They understand the life lessons to be gained in the parkour sport that they love and embrace they're not celebrating him because he landed the jump because he didn't he failed he fell what they're celebrating is the fact that the real triumph the real championship moment the real character builder the real achievement is the fact that he pushed through his fear he pushed through the mental block he made that fucking jump he leapt I trust myself, I trust my skills, I trust the landing, I'm going for it. It's a pivotal moment in his career. He pushed through, he achieved a new level. And of course, as soon as he got back to the top, soaking wet, covered in the mire and the muck of the British Canal system, what did he say? He said, hey, let me borrow your dry clothes, I need to change, I'm going again. And he did it. He did it again, and he did it again, and then he fucking landed it. He made it. He achieved the goal. But by the time he landed it, it was just for himself. Everybody else already knew he was a champion, knew he was a winner. Check out the story YouTube channel. You won't be sorry. Uh, 47 minutes into the show. It's going to be a long one. Um, I'm going to make this one real short. Netflix, uh, if you're a Netflix subscriber, if you know someone who's a Netflix, Netflix subscriber who will give you a login, check out The Last Blockbuster, a super nostalgic, super kind of comforting, charming documentary about the last remaining Blockbuster video location in Bend, Oregon. Follows the family that runs it and operates it and the, the, you know, the people they've brought through town and kind of their relationship with the franchise and kind of the history of it. Why did the franchise fail? How did it fall so quickly and so dramatically? Um, really, you know, a, a, but it lets you step into the blockbuster location a little bit and feel a little bit of that magic again. So make sure you check it out. Um, okay. 48 minutes.
we've got two stories left. Um, Spycraft is going to wait till next week. Let's blue pen that. Sorry, Emily. Sorry, Lee. Micronations. We're just not going to have time tonight. Um, meme dumps. Sundays and Wednesdays on the Instagram. Look for my meme dumps. I have a lot of fun creating them. I hope you guys have a lot of fun checking them out. Um, I don't know. It's just it's just one of those things I ended up doing, and now I enjoy it. I'm on a schedule. I look forward to the days that I do it. I look forward to seeing which of the memes resonate which, with you, which of the ones you respond to. Um, we're going to close the show out with our Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week. Um, right now, we're going to dip into the Lost Treasures series. Um nope that's not the song I wanted what the fuckity fuck fuck (laughs) oh boy oh boy oh boy late into the show my button clicking finger is getting a little bit wonky it's time for another entry into nonsense the show's lost treasure series this is one of my favorite series I know several of you have mentioned that you really enjoy this one as well hope you enjoy this edition which is entitled the lost city of death valley mummies giants underground caverns so said a san diego california newspaper in describing an event in death valley in 1947 uh for those of you that are loyal listeners of nonsense the show you'll know that uh, 1947 is also the year of the roswell new mexico ufo crash 197 uh, 1947 was apparently a very active year for supernatural and mysterious circumstances in the western united states A land of extremes, Death Valley, California is one of the hottest, driest, and lowest places on Earth. With summer temperatures averaging well over 100 degrees and a long history of human suffering in the vast desert, the valley appears to be aptly named. But people have been calling this rugged and desolate desolate land home for as long as 9,000 years. In in, In early August 1947... A man named Howard E. Hill of Los Angeles, California, spoke before the city's transportation club and told a rather sensational story. The tale described the work of a man named Dr. F. Bruce Russell, who claimed to have discovered a series of complex tunnels deep below Death Valley in 1931. Russell, a retired Cincinnati, Ohio physician, and a colleague named Dr. Daniel S. Bovee, who he had worked with on archaeological archaeological excavations in Mexico several years earlier, allegedly stumbled upon these caves quite by accident. Russell, who had reportedly moved west for his health, um, as you did at the time, decided to scout out mining opportunities in the area. According to the tale, while Russell was sinking a shaft for a mining claim, he fell into a cave when the soil gave way. And when he landed, discovered a catacomb of tunnels leading off into several different directions. When Russell and Bovey began to explore the caverns, they followed one tunnel where they were extremely surprised to find the mummified remains of three gigantic men who were estimated to be eight or nine feet tall. The giants were clothed in garments consisting of a medium-length jacket and trousers extending slightly below the knees. So capris. Frock coats and capris. (laughs) The material's texture was said to resemble gray-dyed sheepskin, 
but they believed it to be taken from an animal which is unknown today. The room also held several artifacts that resembled Egyptian and American Indian designs, and hieroglyphics were chiseled on carefully polished granite. The explorers believed that they had found the burial place of this mysterious unknown tribe's hierarchy. Following another tunnel, they came across what they described as a ritual hall of these ancient people. Here, they once again found artifacts and marking of the well-preserved remains of animals, including dinosaurs, elephants, and even tigers. Later, it was suggested that perhaps these bones belonged to ancient saber-toothed tigers and possibly mammoths. Further, Russell had described to Hill that he and Bovey had only touched the surface of their discovering, stating that there were at least 32 tunnels and estimating that they ran across 180 square miles across Death Valley and parts of southern Nevada. Professional archaeologists were skeptical of the story, to say the least, and Los Angeles County Museum scientists pointed out that dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers appeared on Earth 10 to 13 million years apart. No one in the professional world of archaeology was interested enough in the story to check it out personally. But despite the scientist's disinterest, Dr. Russell and a group of investors created a corporation called Amazing Explorations Incorporated to handle the release and uh, hopefully profit from this remarkable find. But in the constantly shifting sands of the deceiving desert, Russell was unable to find the site the next time he tried to show his friends. Not too long afterward, Russell disappeared. Months later, Russell's car was abandoned with a burst radiator in a remote area of Death Valley. His suitcase was still in the car. And of Dr. Bovey, well, he seemingly also disappeared into the shadows, far, far away from the rest of this mystery. Nothing but a hoax, perhaps, but uh, that's not the end of the story. Nor is it the beginning. For centuries, legends of an underground city and an ancient race in Death Valley have been told in the Paiute legend of the kingdom of Shin Ao Av. This place, meaning God's land or ghost land, is a sacred place to the is a sacred place to the Paiute people. According to the legend, thousands of years ago, an important Paiute chief, Paiute chief lost his wife. Devastated, the leader was so overcome with grief and sorrow he began to think that life without her was not worth living. He soon decided to take his earthly body into the land of the dead. Following the trail of brave Indian spirits through endless underground passages, the journey was a long and difficult one. As he traveled, he was besieged by evil spirits, fierce beasts, and supernatural demons. Finally, though, his brave journey was rewarded by glorious sunlight at the end of the trail. But he had yet one more ordeal, crossing an extremely narrow rock bridge that arched over a bottomless canyon. But he could see the beautiful green meadows of the spirit land across the way and determinedly made his way across to safety. 
entering the great kingdom ruled by Shin Ao Av. He was welcomed by a beautiful maiden who was the daughter of Shin Ao Av. The, priestess, uh, the princess took the hand of the brave chieftain and led him to a large natural amphitheater. There, the chief looked upon thousands of dead and happy Paiute people dancing in a huge circle. Though he was no doubt pleased to see that the dead were happy, he bemoaned, I will never find my wife in the crowd. The princess promised him that he would, and instructed him to sit at the edge of the circle watching until his wife would pass. She then left him momentarily, returning with food and drink to make him comfortable. When she returned, she left him with one more directive. When you see your beloved wife... Carry her off quickly without either of you making a backward glance. Then travel back the way you came. The chief agreed and sat patiently waiting to see his wife dance by. After several days, he saw several people he had known in the past, including both friends and enemies. But he had not yet seen his beloved wife. Just as he was beginning to despair, he saw her approaching late, on the third night, he ran to her with his arms spread wide, grabbed her, and the two then fled the valley hand in hand, moving towards the ribbon bridge that crossed the great chasm. But for all his bravery and determination, the chief risked a quick glance, risked a quick look back at the beautiful valley. And in that brief moment, he was suddenly standing alone. In the end, he made his way back to his people, where he spent the rest of his life telling the story of the wonders and beauty of the kingdom of Shin Ao Av. And thus, the legend was born, to be passed down from one generation to the next for years to come. But that isn't the only tale about catacombs beneath Death Valley. In fact... There are several others. Many years later, in the 1920s, a prospector named White claimed that he had fallen through the floor of an abandoned mine at Wingate Pass in the southwest corner of Death Valley. When he fell, he fell into an underground tunnel. Going deeper into the labyrinth, he came to a group of rooms where he found hundreds of leather-clad human mummies surrounded by gold bars and other treasures. Now we're getting to the good stuff. (laughs) The rooms in a tunnel that extended deeper into the catacombs were lit with a pale greenish-yellow light of unknown origin. However, White did not follow the tunnel deeper into the unknown. White claimed he had explored the catacombs two more times after his initial find. During his second visit, he was accompanied by his wife, and on the third... By his, prox- by his prospector partner, Fred Thomason. In the meantime, after hearing about White's find, a Paiute Indian named Tom Wilson, who worked as a trapper and a guide, told a somewhat similar story. White claimed that his grandfather had discovered the below-ground caverns of Death Valley many years before. As he told the tale... His grandfather had gone into a cave that led to numerous tunnels and large rooms beneath the valley floor. After wandering for miles, his grandfather had come to an underground city where he found a group of fair-skinned people 
that spoke an unknown language and wore leather-like clothing. He also said that the people had horses, were sustained by the food he had never seen before, and that the pale greenish-yellow lights illuminated their city. The Indian, after having been missing for some time, finally returned home to tell his people of his discovery. Upon hearing his story, most of them were dubious about the authenticity of his adventure. But his grandson, Tom Wilson, absolutely believed the tale. Prospector White agreed to lead Tom Wilson and a group of archaeologists to the underground city entrance. But on this trip, White was unable to locate the cavern. However, they did locate a curious dead-end tunnel that had been carved out of solid rock. No doubt, they were all disappointed. That didn't stop Tom Wilson, though, who spent the rest of his life searching for the underground city until his eventual death in 1968. The area around Wingate Pass was eventually absorbed into the China Lake Naval Weapons Center and is now closed to the public. And just as a, uh, we'll call it an editor's note, uh, mighty convenient to place a naval weapons center uh, in the middle of the desert. Maybe somebody in a .gov uh, found out about the caverns and needed a cover story for their eventual exploration. Hmm? Would make a great movie. Interestingly, another tale with remarkable similarity was told by an old prospector named Bork Lee in the book Death Valley Men, published in 1932. Sip rum for the Death Valley Men. <clears throat> Lee also tells of an underground city located in the Panamint Mountains of Death Valley. In his story, two men by the names of Jack and Bill were exploring near Wingate Pass when one of them fell through the bottom of an old mine shaft of course fitting the theme of all the other stories. His partner obviously followed into what was described as a natural underground cavern. The pair allegedly followed a tunnel some 20 miles northward into the heart of the Panamint Mountains. These two men eventually arrived at a large ancient underground at large ancient underground rooms where they reportedly found several perfectly preserved human mummies which were adorned with thick armbands and held gold spears. Further, they said that the cavern rooms were illuminated by a system of lights fed by subterranean gases, and the rooms were filled with treasure. This time, however, the reports of the riches were more descriptive, with the men claiming to have found large statues of solid gold, stone vaults, and drawers filled with gold bars and gemstones and, of course, a, um, a beautifully polished round table. Further, the story describes perfectly balanced heavy stone wheelbarrows and huge stone doors, which are almost perfectly balanced by counterweights. All of this speaks to a rather advanced and wealthy, um, as well as an engineering-minded civilization. Very mysterious. After finding this incredulous room, the two men carried off a few artifacts and some of the treasure before continuing their journey through the tunnel, which inclined upwards to the point that opened about halfway up the eastern slope of the Panamint Mountains. When the two men returned, they displayed the treasure they had brought down, which they hoped might lure archaeologists to the site. 
But in this tale, like so many others involving hidden riches, there would be a twist in the plan. (sighs) Allegedly, a friend made off with the artifacts, and when the two men tried to lead experts to the mine opening, they were unable to locate it once again. Jack and Bill claimed that a recent rainstorm had altered and rearranged the terrain. Like the former discoverers, these two were also determined to find the cavern entrance and were allegedly last seen preparing to climb the east face of mm, the east face of the Panamint Mountains. After which, they were never heard from again. What's the true story of the lost city of Death Valley? What's the, stu- mm, what's the true story of the treasure of the lost city of Death Valley and the mysterious missing miners, prospectors, adventurers, and treasure hunters who have lost their lives attempting to find it? I don't know, but I sure would like to. That, ladies and gentlemen, is episode 231's segment of the Lost Treasure series and now of course we only have one segment left to go it's a long episode this week i hope you guys are on board with that i'm having a great time um well i reckon this is the only song we could use to start off the captain's film institute film of the week segment um entry number 19 to the cfi list of the captain's favorite movies uh this is golden years by david bowie a controversial addition to the soundtrack of A Knight's Tale, which is this week's entry into the Captain's Film Institute. Don't let me hear you say lights taking you nowhere. Look at that sky, life's begun. Nights are warm and the days are young. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for sticking with us this deep into the show. Um, Every now and again, you have an episode that runs long. Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it feels bad. Tonight, it feels real, real good. Hope you're having a good time. I know I sure am. If you are enjoying it, make sure you leave a review on the iTunes, Apple Podcast app. Um, or Spotify, or wherever the hell you listen. Um, if you can't leave a review wherever you listen, send me a message, beardandbonesgmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Let me know what you think. Um, anytime I get a compliment or feedback or uh, a review of the show, it makes my day a little bit better. It's nice to know y'all are listening. I hope you tell your friends. I hope you bring them on board. Let them know about the fun. Um, all right, let's dive into it. This week's edition of the Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week is an incredible film, a classic, one of my all-time favorites. A little cheesy, a little hokey, a little bit controversial. That's right, number 19 is A Knight's Tale. 2001 film starring Heath Ledger, Paul Bettany, Mark Addy, Shannon Sossaman, and, of course, the ever-hilarious, incredibly expressional Alan Tudyk. A uh, description of the film is as such, inspired by the Canterbury Tales, as well as the early life of William Marshall, later the first Earl of Pembroke. This is the story of William, a young squire with a gift for jousting. After his master dies suddenly, the squire hits the road with his cohorts Roland and Watt. 
On the journey, they stumble across an unknown writer called Chaucer. William, lacking a proper pedigree, convinces Chaucer to forge genealogy documents that will pass him off as a knight. With his newly minted history in hand, the young man sets out to prove himself a worthy knight at the country's jousting competition. And, of course, finds romance along the way. One of the critics at the time of its release described it as a predictable, if spirited, Rocky on horseback. Which I think is a pretty fair description. It's, uh, listen, this is not a movie that's going to surprise you. It's not a movie that's going to blaze new trails or anything like that. It is a very enjoyable popcorn flick to watch on a Sunday afternoon while you're chilling on the couch avoiding life's responsibilities. Um, We're going to go ahead and just get right into the major controversy, the major sticking point about this film with most people that I've talked to about it. I actually had two messages about it this week when I put it up for a vote. Um, It's the music and the fact that this film takes a lot of modern liberties. The director of the film, a man by the name of Brian Helgeland, um, he spoke of attempting to give modern audiences a feeling of attending a joust. Uh, but Joust's contemporary music would not have the same emotional punch to modern audiences. So what he did was instead of using, um, you know, Renaissance-era music, which would just not have the same emotional impact on modern audiences, he used modern music. He used a little bit of modern theming. The word I saw a lot as I was reading about different reviews and different uh, analyses of the film was anachronism, anachronistic. They really tried to infuse a little bit of modern energy into the film, which kind of set counter to the medieval setting, the medieval themes, the medieval story, is a little strange. Um, weirdly, like, I watch this film relatively regularly. Every few months I watch it because it makes me happy. It's a classic. It's, you know, one of those comfort movies for me. Um, Heath Ledger, of course. Dreamboat. What's up? Um... I tend to go back and forth about how I feel about this modern interpretation. Um, I love We Will Rock You as, you know, kind of the opener in the opening credits as they kind of, you know, staging the joust, showing all the people chanting and singing, showing everybody get prepared. It kind of really gives you a good eye. Once you know what the director's intention was with that modern flair, it does give you a much better idea of what you're supposed to be feeling. It shows you what the crowd was feeling. It kind of puts you in that mindset and sets that tone. The same way it would as if you're at a football game, a basketball game, a baseball game, and they play We Will Rock You. It's supposed to get the crowd pumped up, singing along, stamping along, cheering along, ready to go. You know what I mean? Um, again, I go back and forth, but I really like Lowrider for the training montage. It doesn't fit uh, with its lyrics. It doesn't really fit with the tone, with the theme, with the era. It doesn't fit any of that. Um, but I can't say I don't enjoy it. The training montage where Watt and Roland are training uh, training William to take over uh, for Sir Hector. Um, you know, they're out in the woods. They're racing around clearings. They're fighting each other. They're towing him on a boat while he's trying to shove his lance through a ring, and then he fucking drowns in his armor. It's a whole thing. Lowrider fits perfectly. Um, and I don't know if this is just me. Maybe this is just me. But the boys are back in town. That's a song that I have a tradition that, you know, I've, I've spent some time away from my home area. Every time I come back, you know, within the first week, I try to find some time to go drive the back road. 
mountains, the rolling hills, the golden pastures, the, the ravines, the cows, the rock formations, the forests, all of the things that make my home what it is. I go try to drive through just like I did when I was in high school, just like I did when I was in college, just what I did, you know, like I did when I was a cop, just like I did when I was injured and recovering and going through all of those things. And just like I do now, I try to drive. And if I've been away for any period of time, one of the, one of the first songs I play while I'm driving, because it puts me in the mindset of a movie scene is the boys are back in town. This movie always makes me think of that when it plays the, uh, when it plays the song. Um, it's just a homecoming backroads tradition for me. I love it. So there's an emotional connection there, which, uh, you know, is certainly going to buy this movie a little bit extra, extra goodwill in my world. Um, Buh, 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 buh. See, I'm conflicted on the modern choices, but fuck it. I like it. I'm in. I'll buy it. Once you know what the director wanted, you can kind of just jump into his vision and go, okay, I'll take the ride with you. Um, there's a buddy comedy in the, in the recesses, in the shadows of this movie. The running feudal relationship between Roland and Watt is a highlight of the film for me. Their bickering, their mimicry, their taunting, and then the undercurrent of love and loyalty that you know those two characters would never and will never voice aloud really makes them both that much much deeper as characters, much more endearing. It really adds a little bit to the support system that William slash Sir Ulrich of Liechtenstein builds. Let's talk about the highlight character of the film, though. Okay? Played by Paul Bettany, William Chaucer. Starting at, uh, well, near the beginning. Um, Paul Bettany's first day on set was, of course, the Simon the Summoner scene. Um, where he has to appear nude in front of a large gang of extras. What a way to start your time on the film. Hey guys, I'm Naked. My name's Paul. Nice to meet you. Um, his debut into the movie is a triumphant and literarily lovely debut. His casual nudity whilst passing a group of strangers on the road and uh, his quick wit with a flowery and poetic verse prepared. Um, and just to give you a taste. Um, hi, what are you doing? I'm trudging, you know, to trudge the slow, weary, depressing, a walk of a man who's lost everything and so on and so forth. In the DVD commentary, director Brian Hegland commentating with Bettany states that the film was intended to have occurred sometime in the 1370s during a six month period in which Chaucer seems to have gone missing. And of course, any fucking fan of literary anything, anybody that's paid attention in art history, literary history, English class, or any other fucking class, certainly is aware of the name William Chaucer. Yes, that William Chaucer. In the 1370s, he went missing for six months. History has no fucking idea what he was doing. That's when this film is set. It's to show what he might have done during this time in which Heglin says later on in the commentary inspired Chaucer to write the Canterbury Tales, very famous book you may have read in high school. He introduces himself with the obvious expectation of recognition to William, Watt, and Roland. Um, he, he believes he's somebody important, despite the fact that at the time he is a new destitute trudger covered in filth. What a charismatic, confident son of a bitch he is, huh? Paul Bettany developed uh, laryngitis because of all the yelling he had to do as Williams Herald. And of course, his introduction scenes before the jousts are some of my personal favorites. Ring announcers, MCs, people of that sort of some of my personal 
idols, I guess. That's a job I'd really like to do. If you ever have an event or a situation in which you need an MC, a host, a fucking loud mouth, or a chatterbox, I got you covered. Reach out to me, beardandbones, gmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Uh, One of my favorite Chaucer lines in the film is uh, as he's talking to Simon the Summoner and his equally scummy counterpart, I will eviscerate you in fiction. Every last pimple, every last character flaw. I was naked for a day. You will be naked for eternity. And that's why you don't fuck with an artist, right? (laughs) When Chaucer first introduces Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein in his speech, the crowd doesn't react at first because um, they were filming in the Czech Republic and the extras, natives of the Czech Republic, didn't understand English. It required Mark Addy as the loyal Roland, prompting everybody by shouting and running a for, running ahead um, to kick everybody off and start cheering. This awkward moment was, of course, left in the film because it made the scene funnier. A couple of the memorable lines in the film. Um, a man can change his stars. This is a running theme. This is like one of the major messages of the film. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, if you believe hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you take advantage of opportunities presented to you, you can change your stars. You can build the life you've always dreamed of. You can improve your situation. It's a fairy tale. A man can change his stars. I love it. Of course, throughout the film, you have Alan Tudyk as Watt telling everybody that he meets that he's going to fong them. He is going to fong them into the next century. Fong, um, I didn't do too much deep research on it because I didn't really fucking want to. I believe that fong is just an easy way to, easy way to keep a PG, PG-13 rating and still have like a really strong F word. Fong. Fong, fuck, fuck fong. I will fong you. I like it. I'm in. Count Adamar as our villain is an excellent and hateable villain. He's sleazy, he's smug, he's arrogant, he is just evil enough to fucking hate. But you can also still see where he's coming from. You can recognize his viewpoint. That's a good villain. A little bit of fun trivia. The tremendous sound of the lances breaking against armor was made by taking a howitzer cannon firing and slowing the sound down by half. 50% of a howitzer. I don't know why you need to know that, but I thought you did. Historical fact check for the film. Of course, several of the named knights in the movie were, in fact, real people. Though many of them are from different time periods in history. Ulrich von Lichtenstein was, in fact, a knight and an author who was said to have invented the concept of chivalry and courtly love. Very important for anybody who studies the knightly legends. I said courtly love, not Courtney love. Okay? That's a very important distinction I want to make sure I make. Um, He boasted that he would give a golden ring to any knight who could break a lance on his armor. And by the time he finished, he gave away 271 rings in total. Uh, But he, he did remain undefeated in the joust, despite having 271 lances broken against him. Piers Courtney was a descendant of Edward I, born in the 15th century. Sir Thomas Colville was a knight in the 13th century, and Roger Mortimer was the name of several related noblemen in the 13th and 14th centuries in England. One was the lover of King Edward II's wife, Isabella of France. And as a result, he was hanged, drawn, and quartered by the Black Prince's father, King Edward III, for his complicity in Edward II's death. Wow. 
That was a really uplifting historical fact check. Thanks for that, Captain Nick. Um, there's a weird bit of product placement that every time I've watched this movie, it's bothered me. When the armorer is making Ulrich's new lighter, modern set of armor, she includes her maker's mark in it. That doesn't bother me. That's something every blacksmith, every armorer, every artist does. You include your fucking mark so people know who you are. What always bothered me was that her weird uh, logo looked like two upside-down Nike swooshes. And I just thought it was like a really weird, random, lame fucking logo to use. Uh, In researching this movie for this very show, I found out that that is actually like official product placement from Nike. The blacksmith's mark that Kate puts on William's armor is the logo for Nike, providing product placement. uh, Coincidentally, the founder of Nike is named Phil Knight. This was only brought to the filmmaker's attention after filming was completed. They had to show the scene to a Nike exec in order to get permission to use the swoosh, and the exec pointed out the coincidence. So apparently the directors of the film decided like, hey, let's put the Nike swoosh in. That's a great idea. And then they're like, oh shit, we better... Like, make sure Nike's cool with that. So they had to go talk to Nike. I don't like it. Not good. At the end, uh, the finale scene after the fucking, you know, spoilers, triumphant finale, Chaucer says to, to, to his mates, I think I'll write this down. The Knight's Tale, coincidentally, is the title of the first chapter in Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. <laughs> Uh, the part where Jocelyn tells William to prove his love by doing his worst in the tournament appears to be taken directly from the Guinevere and Lancelot romance in Christian Detroit's 12th century poem, Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart. So that's directly from the tales of the Knights of the Round Table. Very interesting. Didn't know that. I really enjoy the interactions, of course, between William and Prince Edward in disguise as they joust. Throughout the movie, there are several scenes where these two interact, and it's always about respect. It's always about honor. It's a clear and unspoken respect for each other as knights, as men, and as nobles. Um, it's a worthy ideal, and that's why I mention it. It's, it's something that I try to use when I interact with anybody, and I think if everybody did that, the world would be a better place. So, um, Throughout the movie, William's constant puppy love towards Jocelyn um, especially thrown through him talking to, uh, especially shown rather through him talking to his friends is it's really endearing. It reminds me of being that way as a younger man. You know, I went through those stages. Um, it's embarrassingly naive and innocent at times, but it's also very, very pure and sweet. Um, worth mentioning. Also worth mentioning is the fact that Mark Addy, the man that plays Roland, the man that played uh, King, uh, what's his bucket, Robert Baratheon in the Game of Thrones. Mark Addy is an actor who I just really, really like. I remember watching a lot of him. The first time I saw him was as the dad on some sitcom he did. I can't remember the name of it um, while I was recovering from kidney surgery. So he, you know, while I was, you know, kind of vulnerable and drugged up, I watched a lot of his simple, silly sitcom. I love the learning to dance scene. It's just a particular favorite of mine. Watt and Chaucer's back and forth, uh, you know, concluded with the, uh, you can hit me all day because you punch like a what? A girl. I love it. Uh, nope, you're not imagining things. Prince Ulrich's shield, sigil, and logo are, in fact, based on the hood emblem of the legendary Pontiac Trans Am. 
Phenomenal pub songs. We've talked about sea shanties. Sea shanties and pub songs are not far off in the musical lineage as far as I'm concerned. He's blonde. He's pissed. He'll see you in the list. Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein. He's blonde. He's tan. He comes from Gelderland. He comes from Gelderland. Gelderland. Okay, whatever. Um, and at the climax, uh, the discovery of his identity, the arrest, um, the stocks, Chaucer's lost magic as he, as he addresses the crowd and they throw vegetables and rotten food at him. And then finally, Prince Edward stepping up, the black prince himself, stepping up to repay the grace, the honor, the dignity, the respect that Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein, now, of course, William of Cheapside, displayed to him, he repays it. He gives him the prince's grace. He knights him, claims him as a descendant of an ancient and royal line. And he fixes everything. And quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that's all you can ask for out of a film. Captain's Film Institute entry number 19 is, of course, A Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger, and a whole bunch of other people. You should check it out. You should love it. One hour, 25 minutes. This is probably the longest show I've done this season. Um... It's definitely gone on too long. Stay tuned after the credits for a very special song. You know I like to leave you a little uh, Easter egg after the fact. Nonsense 231. I don't have a name for it yet. You'll know it if you're listening because you'll be able to read it on your screen. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Patreon.com. Beardandbonesgmail.com. Love you lots. Bye.
goodbye.